0: Welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. This podcast is typically hosted by Brian L. Fry, Spears-Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. However, Professor Fry made the grave mistake of letting yours truly, Her Highness S.J. Morrison, take the driver's seat for this episode. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Professor Katherine Christopher, the associate dean for bar success and professor of law at the Texas Tech University School of Law on her paper, Normalizing
1: Struggle. Professor, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I actually want to start off by telling how I came across this paper. Uh, Professor London, one of our most admired professors at Duquesne Law, posted this article to Twitter with a comment stating, Students said to me this week, your class is the hardest I have ever taken in law school. Good. Struggle in learning is completely normal. If it isn't easy, you're doing it right. And my first thought was, that's a little bit psychotic. So <laughs> then, <laughs> but then I read your article. So tell me, what inspired you to write this article?
1: I teach a lot of classes at Texas Tech. I teach a lot of academic support and bar prep and legal writing and skills classes. And I've watched students struggle with the material for many years now. And the thing that's always sort of bothered me is how defeated they looked when they told me in the first week of September that they weren't getting it. And I thought nothing worth learning comes easily. Why are you so dismayed that this is difficult for you? And I found as I talked to students that they were conflating the idea of struggling with the idea of failure. I think a lot of people as they're growing up and living their lives think that the sign of Success is being a prodigy where things come easily and effortlessly, and you're the smartest one in the room without having to work at it. And working with so many law students and watching my fellow law professors, all of whom are brilliant, uh, I realized that no, effortless is not the goal here. The goal is quality, and that requires time and effort.
0: Okay. So you're in your article, you note that we're going to jump into the classroom here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You note that the Socratic method can lead to humiliation by students, Mm -hmm. but doesn't the Socratic method encourage conversation in the classroom and thereby increase student engagement?
1: Um, I don't think so. No. (laughs) Um, I think that's what it's supposed to accomplish. I think it's supposed to accomplish more dialogue, more discussion, more debate. What I think it actually accomplishes in the classroom is preventing people from speaking unless they're sure they've got something eloquent and insightful to say. And I don't think most people have something insightful and eloquent. Instead, what they have are questions and things that they're wrestling with. But the Socratic classroom is not a safe place for most people to take risks or say something that might be incorrect. So I think, no, the Socratic classroom is really high-stakes learning, and I'm not sure that's the most effective thing for most of our law students. Well, so
0: what's the worst that can happen then to a student who experiences embarrassment in the Socratic classroom? Uh, can't this be seen as a motivator for students to work harder?
1: Sometimes it is, yes. Yeah, sometimes that kind of public embarrassment is a motivator for students. But I think many times what it is, is a very powerful incentive to not open your mouth unless you're sure you're right. And I think the disservice that does is setting up the expectation that you're right. I think being a lawyer is about not being sure that you're right and making the case anyway. Um, So I really think it's more valuable for students to have a safe space to ask questions and to express their confusion about topics. Because if a student is confused and sticking your hand up in the air and saying in a room full of 50 or 75 or a hundred people, I don't understand this. That's really threatening oftentimes in a Socratic classroom. If the room, the expectation in the room is that you'll only open your mouth if you know exactly what's going on.
0: So, You mentioned earlier that you work uh, in specialized academic support. Is that correct? Yes, I do. Am I saying that correct? Okay, so do you feel that specialized academic support in law schools generally uh, is helpful? Do you feel that it can amplify feelings of embarrassment or amplify issues related to struggle for students?
1: I think this is a really complicated question that you've just asked me. I think that... Academic support is an important thing to be able to provide for students. I think students who are struggling, who have questions, who have sources of confusion, need to be able to express those and get assistance. Law school does not come easily for anybody, and there are some students for whom it comes even less easily. So I think having resources for every student in the building to meet all of their needs is very, very important. I think, however, there's a double-edged sword. When we have a specialized academic support office, the risk then becomes that students who seek out academic support are somehow labeled or stigmatized because they need those services. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who teach academic support like I do have conversations with one another about how are we going to reduce the stigma of students coming to my office to seek help from me. So I fear that having specialized academic support people in the building sends the message to students that the quote-unquote regular faculty are only for the students who are not struggling and that the academic support faculty are for the students who need some extra help and that that's a negative thing. It's sort of like um, when you go to your family doctor, your your primary care physician, and the doctor says, "Ooh, you need a specialist. That's a bad thing. <laughs> you to go see the specialist doctor because the generalized one can't help you anymore. like that's really scary. And so if your constitutional law professor is not able to help you in the classroom or outside of it and you have to go see a specialist, that's a really threatening thing. So I'm aware though that academic support is really valuable, and I don't want to get rid of it altogether, certainly not um there are incredibly talented people who teach academic support classes and who make academic support resources available for students. And there's a real argument to be made that's, that experts in that field should do and should be the ones providing that service. On the other hand, I think there's a, a really important argument to be made that all law faculty should be, to some degree, academic support specialists. So
0: in your article... You talk about how the new generation of students that are are coming from the no child left behind approach to schooling mm-hmm. and how the skills of a lawyer and the skills tested in law school are really antithetical to this approach to learning because it was a teach to the test. It was a deductive reasoning it was a multiple choice mm-hmm. and law school teaching as it currently stands is naturally in opposition to the way that students were taught in the past. Yes. So shouldn't it inherently break the old habits of students?
1: Well, and it will, but I do not want to break the students while we're breaking their habits. (laughs) And I think also, I think it's really important for faculty to understand what our law students are coming in with. And in particular, to understand that that law students and assuming someone has gone straight from high school to a four-year college and into law school, then, then that student, which is most of them um, has had their formative education shaped by this no child left behind approach. these, Um, multiple choice assessments where you have to skim a relatively short passage, choose the correct answer and move on. And as you say, that's all antithetical to what we do in law school where we do very close, very critical reading of very long texts and we explore the ambiguity rather than finding the right answer and moving on. I think the important thing for faculty to realize is that when students come to law school without the ability to do that long, critical reading, it's not their fault. (laughs) High school students, K through 12 students, were taught very carefully under No Child Left Behind to perform this skill set, and they got really good at it. And it's not their fault that the skill set that they have come to law school with is different than the skill set we have been expecting of them. We as professors need to be mindful of that and begin to get really explicit with students about teaching them how to be law students, because it's a very different study strategy and skill set than they come to us with.
0: You know, I'll tell you, this is kind of funny. So I was only a couple of weeks into my 1L uh, year and I went to my professor after class and I said, can you just give me just what's the right answer? <laughs> I just Getting this like deer in headlights, like have I taught you nothing? There is no, it's not black and white. As you said, we explore the ambiguity, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, And so in your article, you encourage testing throughout the term facilitated by the faculty. But do you feel that this might lead to student laziness because it might encourage students to cram for tests throughout the term rather than engaging in continuous study throughout the semester?
1: Actually, I think the exact opposite will happen. Forcing them to cram repeatedly is the same thing as having them study. So ah. instead, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the alternative, which is to just give one final exam at the end of the semester, encourages them to not stay on top of things. If, on the other hand, they've got three quizzes, one at the end of every month while they're in law school, and then a final exam, particularly if those quizzes and the final exam are all cumulative, so they test everything that's come before then that what you call cramming but if you're doing it multiple times that's then the useful kind of studying so for instance when i was in law school since we're swapping stories <laughs> one of my <laughs> classmates said to me during 2L year he said we were getting ready for finals and he said you know i understand absolutely everything that's gone on in this particular class except the material we covered in weeks 4 through 11 uh, oh dear <laughs> <laughs> had there been several quizzes along the way he would not have been so far behind
0: You also encourage professors to provide individual written feedback to students. In classes that could exceed 100 students, you're talking about increasing workload for the professors drastically. Do you think this is efficient or even feasible?
1: No, it's not feasible in every classroom, definitely many people think that individualized written comments on um, essay responses is sort of the gold standard of feedback. And that may or may not be true, but in the article I explore some other ways of giving feedback much more efficiently to larger groups of people. Um, For instance, I really like to do what I call guided self-assessment. So distributing a sample answer and then taking time in the classroom to help students process the, Um, the content of that sample answer. Many students sort of skim through a sample answer and either say like, yeah, that's basically what I wrote, or they say like, oh, I could never accomplish that much. And either way, there's not a whole lot of learning that's happened there. So I spend time in the classroom forcing students to engage with the sample answer one paragraph at a time, always asking them questions about Uh, how can you make your answer look more like a sample answer next time? And so I also spend a lot of time during that hour being silent, giving students a few minutes of silence to make notes for themselves about the quality of their own work product and how they can do better next time. I also really like doing peer feedback, so swapping your paper with a neighbor and giving each other some feedback. That takes some setup. Um, Students are often uncomfortable when I first suggest peer feedback, and so you need to do a little bit of explaining ahead of time why we're doing what we're doing, what you expect the students will get from the peer feedback, and what they're not getting from the peer feedback. Uh, And so long as they're clear on that, I think it's really beneficial for a student to read someone else's work product, um, because they can see um, how someone else answered the question. It's, It's often... Easier to spot errors or strengths in someone else's writing than it is in your own. And so seeing some other person's thought process on paper allows you to identify strengths and weaknesses. Then you can go back to your own work product and maybe those strengths and weaknesses will pop out for you as well. Um, But it's also helpful for a student to hear from a colleague, from a classmate, I didn't understand what you were saying here, I don't think you're writing down everything you think you are, or I think you're over explaining something that was obvious.
0: Oh, I have to say I was a little uh, surprised when I read the peer feedback part in your article because my gut reaction, and this is not in any way speaking ill of my colleagues, but my gut reaction was, well, you're kind of in the same boat I am, and the professor is really the expert. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure how I as a student could ever provide valuable feedback, but you are saying that students might be able to see over-explanation, under-explanation, and more importantly, when you aren't articulating what you think you are articulating. Is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of good learning happens. I think that the person who has written the work product benefits from hearing another smart person's take on it and what what's there and what isn't, what works and what doesn't. Um, I think it's also really useful for the person who's doing the reading Um, To see strengths and weaknesses in someone else's writing that would allow them to see their own writing uh, in a new way But your your gut reaction is quite a common one. I I hear from a lot of students um, First of all who am I to give feedback to my peer? I don't know any more than they do. Why am I the one giving feedback and then I also hear students say to me I don't care what my classmates think about my writing. I care what you the professor think about my writing and so it, it takes a little bit of time to explain what we're doing But that often usually does get students over the hump, and they begin to see the value in getting feedback from one another.
0: I have to say, I really like that. You also mentioned that you will take a class hour and provide the sample answer and let students collaborate. Do you recommend that over just providing it online or via email for students to do it outside of class? What's the benefit to doing it within
1: the class? Um, The benefit to doing it within the class, I think, is – demonstrating to the students that this is time worth spending on this particular exercise. Many students want to know how it go and if the answer is good or bad they're not really interested or they don't really see the value in spending more time sitting with that and -hmm. I think that is valuable time. So I make it a priority and we do it in the classroom. I also talk to students especially when they're studying for the bar exam. Um, You know they'll do a set of multiple choice questions and they'll do 25 multiple choice questions and they'll say they'll they'll Spend you know, 90 seconds to figure out well, how many did I get right? And then the answer is you know, 35% right. And they go, well, crap. And they walk away. And that's a tremendous amount of learning time that they've just lost. Because if you spend time sitting with the wrong answers, figuring out why did you get them wrong? How can you do better next time? A, a tremendous amount of learning happens there.
0: You also talked about hopeful feedback mm-hmm. uh, in terms of written feedback provided by the professor's But the reality is that positive feedback from employers in the future might be highly unlikely given the setting. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we prepare our students for the reality of the workforce?
1: Well... Yeah, but we're also not going to send the JV football team out to play against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, there's this is an educational <laughs> setting. <laughs> this is the time to learn what's working and what isn't. And hopeful feedback is what allows students to build some resiliency toward negative feedback. Mm-hmm. I mean... I, Yes, there's a certain number of people who are motivated or unintimidated or determined enough that if I were to rip their appellate brief to shreds, they would be motivated to do better. But I'm willing to bet 70% of the students would go slinking away from my office and feel really defeated. Mm-hmm. And and I'm trying to <laughs> diversify the kinds and number of people who are lawyers. And the way to do that is to welcome as many people as we can into the educational process that is law school. So I'm trying to make every interaction that I have with students, including giving them negative feedback, I'm trying to make that as welcoming and as productive as possible.
0: Uh, Professor, I have I have one final question for you. Sure. It's, it's kind of a
1: general law
0: school question. Mm-hmm. So I've heard students complain. All right. I'm one of these students uh, that there is so much reading to complete for class that they have difficulty finding time to engage in studying,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, meaning the multiple choice and the essays and the flashcarding and you know, the, the, the actual studying part. And uh, how do you recommend students manage time? Is time management something that should be taught in law school?
1: I think so. We teach it here at Texas Tech. Uh, We have a new course just this year that's required for all first-year law students, and we spend the beginning of the semester, and we spend again the end of the semester taking time in the classroom to talk about time management. Um, I think it's really valuable for students to make a list of things that have to get done in, in whatever time period they're thinking about, and then match those items to the calendar and allow themselves to figure out that not everything is crucial. I think that's also really important for law students to to realize that you make yourself a to-do list of things to do, and not everything is the same level of significance, the same level of priority. So figuring out what are the most important things and how much time do I need to spend on those, um, I think is really valuable. And again, it's something that students will probably figure out on their own eventually, um, but I think if we can be explicit about it in law school, it allows students to get the most out of their experience from the very first semester. I mean, there are a lot of students who fall flat on their faces the first semester of law school. I certainly was one of those. And then second semester of law school, I got my legs under me and figured out what I was doing. But then I worry that I sort of missed a bunch from that first year while I was trying to figure out what on earth was going on. Um, So I do think teaching study skills and time management explicitly in the first semester of law school is valuable to help students get the most out of each of the relatively few semesters they spend in law school, we only have law students for six semesters. I don't want them to spend the first third of their education trying to figure out what they're doing.
0: Professor, thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast today. This Absolutely. was really insightful. I have to tell you, I just I was so inspired by this article, and this was really cool to get to talk to you about it.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, the The article it was several years sort of in the percolating in my head, and um, yeah, I, I'm really trying to normalize the idea that that struggling is not at all the same thing as failing, that struggle is the sign of emotional strength, not intellectual weakness. Amen.
2: Tamping down the dirt I saw the future In a dream last night Somebody's gonna get hurt Somebody's gonna get hurt I hope it's not me But I suspect it's going to Game, i could see it happen blossoms black and sweet as texas crude i saw the future flowering like a ruptured vessel somebody's gonna get screwed Tear free